describes reality regardless of the context or the parameters. It doesn't matter how much you want 2 plus 2 to equal 5, it's not going to. Because reality is if you have two things and you add two other things to it, you're going to wind up with four things. You can start a petition and you can get everybody, all 6.2 billion people in the world to sign it that says 2 plus 2 equals 5. You can, Congress can pass a law, the UN can make a resolution. It doesn't matter. Because that's, that statement is absolutely true. It describes reality, regardless of the context or the parameters. If I said my mother makes the best potato salad in the world, that's also true. But it's true in a different way. It's not absolutely true. You could change the parameters. My mother doesn't put mustard in her potato salad, which is why it tastes so good. And she doesn't use a lot of... Man and if your context was the best potato salad with mustard, well, then my mom's is not the best because it doesn't use mustard. Or if you change the context and said it's not up to me to decide, it's up to Les to decide, and he might decide his mom makes the best potato salad. <laughs> but those statements are not absolute. They're true, but they're not absolutely true. They're not a description of reality regardless of the context or the parameters. If you change the context, if you change the parameters, then the truth of the statement changes. That's not just my opinion. And that's what some people do. Well, it's just your opinion. No, it's true. It's just not absolutely true. It's not true for everyone, everywhere, all the time. Today I want to talk about something that is absolutely true. It's an accurate description of reality regardless of the context or parameters. But sometimes I think it's difficult for us to grab onto. This is 2 Corinthians 5, starting in verse 16. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. All this is from God, who reconciled us to, him, to, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That whole passage is um, wonderful. Originally I was going to try to get through the whole thing, but I can't. I got through the first two verses, and it's still long, so you all have to bear with me. Um, verse 17 is the key that we're going to focus on today. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. You probably heard that verse before. There's a condition for being a new creation, and it's being in Christ. So the first thing is, well, what does it mean to be in Christ, that, to be a Christian? If you um, join yourself in a personal relationship with, it, with Jesus through faith, then you're in Christ. If you haven't, then you're not. It's pretty simple. If you are in a relationship with Jesus through faith, then you're in Christ. And if you're not, then you're not. And if you are in Christ, then you're a new creation. And if you're not, then you're not. What does it mean to be a new creation? This whole idea of new creation, the old is gone, the new has come. We've talked about this before. It comes from the Jewish mindset that there were two distinct periods of time. There was this present age that we live in now, that's evil, and there's the age to come, which will be wonderful. And there's going to be a point in history when it's going to shift. Right now we live in an evil age and then God's going to do something and it's going to be the age to come which will be wonderful and God will rule and reign on earth. And that 
idea is the old and the new. The old's going to pass away, and the new is going to come. Kind of the shorthand for this is found in Revelation 21. I'll read it to you. You don't have to flip. I had it marked, so I beat you there. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. See that? We got new and old. And there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, again, the new coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. So this idea of the old age and the new age is picked up in the New Testament. Jesus, that's where he lives in. He defines that more precisely. And you can see in Revelation, that's where this deal is headed. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. The old order of things is going to pass away, and there's going to be a new order where God rules perfectly. And all of the things that characterize this present evil age, sin, mourning, death, sickness, poverty, loneliness, despair, all of those things are going to be done away with. And we'll live in this new age where all of the things that you think would be there will be there. Health, forgiveness, love, joy, peace, purpose, full relationships, all of those types of things will be there. And so that's what Paul is saying. The old is gone, the new has come. Revelation 21.8 says this. This is not so pleasant. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. So we have two things going on here. We have this new heaven and new earth and this fiery lake of sulfur, which is the second death, which doesn't sound like a lot of fun. And what Paul is saying is if you're in Christ, then this is what you get. You get new heaven, new earth. If you're not in Christ, if you're one of these other people, if you're not in Christ, well, then you get the second death, the lake of fiery lake of burning sulfur. So those are your options there. And what's going to determine where you go is whether or not you're in Christ. And so this morning, an obvious question before we move on is, are you? Are you in Christ? I didn't ask if you prayed a prayer in Bible school when you were seven to ask Jesus into your heart. I didn't ask if you're a good person. I didn't ask if you tithed or if you prayed or if you read your Bible or if you went to church a lot. I didn't ask if you've ever killed anybody, if you've never really done anything that bad. Are you in Christ? Are you right now in a relationship with Jesus through faith? Yes or no? Are you in communion with him? Yes or no? If the answer is no, well, I hope you don't get hit by a bus when you leave. Fiery lake of second, the fiery lake burning sulfur second death. That's not going to be fun. If the answer is yes, new creation, new heaven, new earth. That's what awaits you. So, that is what it is. Are you in Christ? Yes or no? Many of you are. Some of you might not be. We can um, talk about that after. If you're not and you want to be, um, we'll have some ministry teams in the back after the message, and you can go back there and talk to somebody, and they'll be more than happy to help you with that. Back to 2 Corinthians. So if you are in Christ, then you're a new creation. The old has passed away. All the things of the present evil age we just talked about are gone. Behold, all things 
are new. Yay. That's terrific. Great. Awesome. But does it ring true in your life? Seriously. If you're in Christ, for those of you who are in Christ, if you looked at your life over the past week, month, or year, would you say, yeah, I'm a new creation. Yeah, all the old stuff has passed away. Yeah, everything's new. Would you say that? Would you say that in your life there's no mourning or pain or sickness or sin or death? Would you say that in your life all of these that God is ruling wonderfully and perfectly and you're enjoying the full reign of God? Most of us would say, not, not so much. And even as we talk about this, maybe some of you are kind of closing your hearts a little bit, not in an arrogant or hateful way, but kind of in a self-protective way. I've heard that before, and I've gone down that path, and nothing changed. And hope deferred makes the heart sick, and it hurts me too much to hope that anything's going to change. And so we kind of have this dilemma where we have Paul, who supposedly is inspired by God, saying, if you're in Christ, which is just, are you a Christian? Are you relating to Jesus through faith, yes or no? If you're doing that, which is not that hard, are you doing that? Well, then you're a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. So we've got him saying that, and then we've got our life that seems to say, not so much new creation here. There's still a whole lot of the old that I'm drowning in and not that much new, which I can enjoy. And so what do we do with that? What's going on? Is, if what Paul is saying is true, if it's absolute truth, which we all say the Bible is, it's an dis- accurate description of reality regardless of context or parameter. If it's the same as 2 plus 2 equals 4, then how come we don't see that necessarily in our lives. This is Psalm 13. I had it marked, so I beat you there again. This is David. How long, O Lord, will you forget me? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, O Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. My enemy will say I've overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, for he has been good to me. I wonder if there's anyone here who relates to David and would say to God, How long? How long will you forget me? Not in every area of life. Maybe just one area. Your health, your finances, something with a relationship, your family, your career. Maybe just one area where you would say, Come on. How long? Are you going to forget me forever? I'm not new. I'm maybe partially new, but it's not all the way done. And there's still some old, and it's getting old because it's been around for a long time, and I don't know what else to do about it. I wonder if anyone else would feel that way. Again, it's not a hateful thing with the Lord. Maybe you just kind of shut down that area, not because you're being disrespectful to him or anything like that, but it's just how long do you want me to hold on hope? hold out hope for this. All I'm doing is getting disappointed over and over and over again. It's just easier to shut it down. And I'll deal with you on these other areas that seem to be going well, but this one, apparently, you're not overly concerned about. So I'm just going to set that to the side over here, and we can deal with the rest of this stuff. And I wonder if anyone else feels that way. I think a, a 
a key to try to figure out what's going on there. How can Paul, remember we talked about Paul last week, his life is not all peaches and cream. No, he's the guy that have gotten whipped, stoned, beaten with rods, shipwrecked, all of that fun stuff. So it's not this guy who's you know sitting on the couch eating bonbons all day saying, I'm a new creation. I mean, it's the guy who's going through it um, regularly saying, I'm a new creation, the old is gone, the new has come. How can he say that? in light of the experience of life, and how can we say that? The key, I think, is found in verse 16. Verse 17 begins with the word, therefore. If you had an English teacher in high school, she might have told you, anytime you see the word therefore, you need to ask what it's there for. It's a word that draws a conclusion. Y'all didn't have any teachers that said that. (laughs) Yeah, you did. So, what's it there for? Uh, It's a word, verse 17 is a conclusion based on something Paul said previously, I think, in verse 16, where he says... He no longer regards Christ from a worldly point of view. Paul knew a lot about Jesus before he started following him. He says in another place that he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He knew what was going on. This area where Jesus traveled was not a big area. Word traveled fast. He wandered around. Everybody would have known who he was. He drew huge crowds. People knew who Jesus was, especially someone like Paul who was so concerned about Religion. I mean, his job was to teach people how do you relate to God. So if there's this other fellow coming along saying this is how you relate to God, Paul's going to know. So he knew all about Jesus, I think, before he began to follow him. And I think he probably had good information about what Jesus did. He did very publicly. Paul was a Pharisee. If you read through the Gospels, you see Jesus and the Pharisees don't necessarily see eye to eye on a lot of things. They don't, the Pharisees didn't get a lot of what Jesus said, and they didn't get a lot of what he did. They didn't get why he hung out with tax collectors and sinners and lepers and women and Gentiles, and they didn't get why he talked about the Old Testament law the way he did, and they definitely didn't get why he put himself in this very intimate relationship and called God his father, and they for sure didn't get why he said he had to die and somehow that was going to be good for everybody else. If They just didn't get him. And Paul was one of the guys who didn't get him. What Paul, from his Pharisee point of view, viewing Jesus according to the world, according to his flesh, from a purely human perspective, he heard all that and he said, you're a lying blasphemer who's leading people away from God and you deserve to die. That's the the conclusion that Paul came to. He had all this information about Jesus and as a Pharisee, from a purely worldly point of view, human perspective, not evil, just human perspective. The conclusion he drew was, you're a lying blasphemer who's leading people away from God and you deserve to die. Now all that changed, if you read, I think it's in Acts 9, where Paul has an encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. It's the bright light. Paul falls off his donkey, blind for three days. He hears an audible voice from heaven. You may remember that story. And that's Jesus talking to him, saying, What's, what are you doing? Basically, why are you doing what you're doing? And that encounter completely changes. The information he has is still the same, but he sees it in an entirely new light. He doesn't regard Jesus from a worldly point of view anymore. He begins to see Jesus on Jesus' terms, and he realized, I made the wrong conclusion. And you know how that works. We all know bad information leads to bad conclusions. But good information, if it's viewed the wrong way or interpreted the wrong way, also leads to bad conclusions. Paul had good info. He just saw it the wrong way. And so he made the wrong conclusion. His therefore was wrong. All these things about Jesus, therefore he deserves to die. He still had the same information. He just saw it from a different perspective. 
and realize that Jesus didn't deserve to die. He's the Son of God and the key to life. I think about that with us sometimes, and I wonder about our how-longs, whatever that is for you, a physical problem, a family problem, a financial problem, a job problem, whatever your how-long is. Would you say, if you were honest, that you view that problem from a worldly perspective, not from an evil one, just from a purely worldly perspective. It's a human perspective or not. If you're honest, would you say that when you look at that issue, you're seeing it as God sees it or not? I think a lot of us trip up because we've got good information. We have the Bible and we know what God says he'll do. We know what he says about sickness. We know what he says about poverty. We know what he says about relationships. We know what he says about peace and joy. Forget. We know what he says about all those things. We're living our life and we have this other experience, these experiences. We've got good information on our experiences. You're an expert on that. We've got good info. We just see it the wrong way and it causes us to jump to the wrong conclusion. And the conclusion we jump to is either he doesn't care or he's forgotten about us, or he can't fix it, or something's wrong with me. That's what we jump to. We've got good information, we see it the wrong way, and it leads us to a wrong conclusion. And we just shut down in that area. Because either God doesn't care, he can't fix it, he doesn't know, or there's something wrong with me, or else he'd have done something by now. This is Hebrews 12. Starting in verse 4. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And you have not forgotten that the word, you have not forgotten that word of encouragement that addresses you as sons. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose your heart when he rebukes you. Because the, Lord's dis- the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of our spirits and live? Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. I don't think God causes tragedy at all. I don't think that's his deal. I think the enemy does that. But I do think God disciplines us. And we've talked about this um, a lot before. God's desire for all of us is to look like Jesus. That's the goal. He wants to crack open your chest, and when he looks at your heart, the center of who you are, he wants to see Jesus. He wants to conform you into that image. And that's his top priority. And he's not against our happiness, and he's not against our success, and he's not against our comfort. Those just aren't his top priorities. We talked last week. Our life is its 18 minutes. That's what we get. And he will gladly trade 18 minutes of comfort or success or pleasure or whatever for forever of you being prepared for eternity. You read there's a new heaven and there's a new earth coming, and he wants to prepare all of us for that. And that's what his business is right now. He's trying to get you ready 
to live forever in a new heaven and a new earth. You're not ready now, and I'm not ready now. And he's, that's his agenda for you and for me. And he will, again, he doesn't wish anyone pain. That's not, he's not sadistic or anything like that, but he knows where he's trying to get us. And he's going to do whatever it takes to get us there. And so he does discipline us. And it's not necessarily pleasant. I don't know if you've ever talked to a kid after they got spanked. They usually aren't going, thanks, Mom. Thanks, Dad. That was great. Our kids don't do that, at least. Maybe yours are, y'all are better parents than us. It's not fun, necessarily. But it's temporary pain, long-term benefit. You know that. I don't have to tell you that. I wonder if some of your how longs, could it be the Lord's discipline? Could it be that in this area where you haven't seen anything, he's using that as a tool to discipline you for the future? Because he's saying, you know, it does, it stinks right now. And he's not unaware of that. That's, that's bad. And he knows it's bad. But he's allowing you to stay in the misery because of what it's doing in you. You're saying, make this situation new. And he's saying, let's keep it old. And I'm going to use it to make your heart new. Because that's what I'm about. I don't think God causes tragedy, but I do think the enemy does. And I think he's active and he's at work. And it could very well be that your how long, whatever that is, it's not the Lord's discipline. It's the evil. It just It's plain evil. It's from the enemy and he's wailing on you in this area for whatever reason. Can God deliver you? Yeah, well then why at me? God doesn't waste anything. You know that. He doesn't waste anything. And it could be that he didn't bring this evil upon you, but he sees an opportunity to use that to accomplish his purposes in your life, and he's doing that. Genesis 50, 20, Joseph, who you may remember, Joseph had um, 11 brothers, and they weren't super... He did something dumb, and they kind of got on, and they threw him in a pit, sold sold him to Egypt, which wasn't... A nice thing. They thought that was better than killing him, was to sell him into slavery. He works, winds up, gets thrown in jail, falsely accused of rape, thrown in jail. People in jail forget about him. Eventually he gets released, moves up second in command in Egypt. That's the short version. It's about 15 chapters in Genesis you can read. And this is what he says when his brothers come back to him. When Joseph's in charge and he's the one, there's a famine in the land and Joseph's in charge of the grain. And so he's the one making sure everybody's fed. His brothers come to him. They don't recognize him. They go through all this back and forth, and eventually he shows them who he is, and they think he's going to kill them, and he says, no. What you intended for harm, God intended for good, to accomplish what you're seeing here, to save many lives. That could be your how long. And that's what, he would, that's what you can say to the devil. What you intended for harm, God intended for good, to accomplish what you're seeing here to save my life and the lives of others. He does that. God didn't, I don't believe, I don't think God brought those tragedies upon Joseph's life. I think God is so enormous that he's able to use those tragedies and weave them together to accomplish his purposes. And he can do the same thing in your life. It could be that it's just plain evil, whatever your how long is. But God's allowing you to stay there because he sees a greater purpose for it than maybe you can. So I think you, at the end of the day, we, we kind of only have... I have a how long, by the way. I'm saying from personal experience. I've got one for seven years. 
area where I'm saying, what's going on here? And so I say this from, not theoretically, but as someone who has one as well. You really only have two options, and I really only have two options. I can give up, and sometimes that really seems like a good option. I can say, God makes almost all things new. I can say, almost all of the old has passed away. I'm almost a new creation. I can say that, and a lot of times that just feels better. I can shut this one area down, say, for whatever reason, God's not working there, so let me just concentrate on the other areas where he is. Sometimes that's easier, but the problem is that shutting down in that area, that hardening of my heart, it doesn't stay in that area. You can't compartmentalize your heart. Maybe for a little bit, but not for the long term. You, you can't do it. You will not. It, it spreads. It's just like cancer. It starts in one place of your body, and if you leave it unchecked, it's not going to stay there. That's not what cancer does. It multiplies, and it will rattle your whole riddle your whole body and that's what the hardness of heart does you can it's just this one area this one how long area that's the only place i'm closing the door it won't stay there over time it's going to infect your entire heart and you're calling god a liar which isn't a very nice thing to say what you're saying god is saying i make all things new and i'm saying well not really god says the old has passed away and i say no it hasn't God says, I'm a new creation, and I say, no, I'm not. I'm calling him a liar. So that's option one, to give up. Option two is what you think it is. It's hang in there. That's all you got. You can give up or you can hang in there. If it's absolutely true, if it's an accurate description of reality, regardless of context or parameters, I can either give up and say, no, it's not, or I can hang in there and say, yes, it is. And I'm going to be honest and say there's an area of my life where I don't see that. But the problem is not with the description of reality. The problem is not with the truth. There's something else going on, but it's not that that's not true. Because either it is or it isn't. And my life doesn't line up with that. So maybe God is disciplining me. Could be. Maybe the enemy is attacking me. Could be. It could be that I'm living in this tension between the present age and the age to come. We've talked about this before. That stuff that we read about in Revelation doesn't happen until Jesus comes back. The Jews had it wrong. They thought there would be a definitive day, everything would turn kind of on a dime. And that's not the way it's happened. From the time Jesus rose from the dead until he comes back, we live in between the present evil age and the age to come. So we've got some evil that we've got to deal with, and we've got some of the blessings of the age to come that we get to enjoy. But they're not full. They're just partial. You get a taste, but you don't get the full meal. And that's where we live right now. And it could be that my how long is just because I'm living in the tension between present evil age and the age to come. could be something else that I don't know or can't comprehend, but it's not that it's not true. If I'm going to hang in there. Let me read you something. This is from the Screwtape Letters. I don't know if you all have read that. It's a book by C.S. Lewis, and it's written from an experienced demon to kind of a rookie demon. And the rookie demon has a guy who he's supposed to be tempting. And this, this guy, they call him, I think, the patient, has become a Christian. And Wormwood is the name of the, um, kind of the rookie. And Screwtape is the name of the veteran. And he's giving, Screwtape is giving Wormwood advice. Here's how you tempt a guy. 
And so when I read, when you hear enemy, that's God. It's written from a demon's perspective. So the enemy is God. Our father is Satan. So just to give you some context. So you have great hope that the patient's religious phase is dying away, have you? Has no one ever told you about the law of undulation? Humans are amphibians, half spirit and half animal. The enemy's determination to, pr to produce such a revolting hybrid was one of the things that determined our father to withdraw his support from him. As spirits, they belong to the eternal world, but as animals, they inhabit time. This means that while their spirit can be directed to an eternal object, their bodies, passions, and imaginations are in con continual change. For to be in time means to change. Their nearest approach to constancy, therefore, is undulation, the repeated return to a level from which they repeatedly fall back, a series of troughs and peaks. If you had watched your patient carefully, you would have seen this undulation in every department of his life. His interest in his work, his affection for his friends, his physical appetite, they all go up and down. As long as he lives on earth, periods of emotional and bodily richness and liveliness will alternate with periods of numbness and poverty. The dryness and dullness through which your patient is now going are not, as you fondly suppose, your workmanship. They're merely a natural phenomenon which will do us no good unless you make good use of it. To decide what the best use of it is, you must ask what the enemy wants to make of it and then do the opposite. Now, it may surprise you to learn that in his efforts to get permanent possession of a soul, he relies on the troughs more even than on the peaks. Some of his special favorites have gone through longer and deeper troughs than anyone else. The reason is this. To us, a human is, prim is primarily good, a good. Our aim is the absorption of its will into ours, the increase of our own area of selfhood at, at its expense. But the obedience which the enemy demands of men is quite a different thing. One must face the fact that all the talk about his love for men and his service being perfect freedom as not, as one would gladly perceive, mere propaganda, but an appalling truth. He really does want to fill the universe with a lot of loathsome little replicas of himself, creatures whose life on its miniature scale will be qualitatively like his own, not because he, he has absorbed them, but because their wills freely conform to his. We want cattle who can finally become food. He wants servants who can finally become sons. We want to suck in. He wants to give out. We are empty and would be filled. He is full and flows over. Our war aim is a world in which our Father below has drawn all other beings into himself. The enemy wants a world full of beings united to him but still distinct. And that is where the troughs come in. You, may have, you must have often wondered why the enemy does not make more use of his power to be sensibly present to human souls in any degree he chooses and at any moment. But you now see that the irresistible and the indisputable are the two weapons which the very nature of his scheme forbids him to use. Merely to override a human will would be useless for him. He cannot ravish, he can only woo. For his ignoble idea is to eat the cake and have it. The creatures are to be one with him, but yet themselves. Merely to cancel them or assimilate them will not serve. He is prepared to do a little overriding at the beginning he will set them off with communications of his presence, which though faint seem great to them, with emotional sweetness and easy conquest over temptation, but he never allows the state of affairs to last long. Sooner or later he withdraws. If not in fact, at least from their conscious experience, all those supports and incentives, he leaves the creature to stand on its own legs, to carry out from the will alone duties which have lost all relish. It is during such trough periods, much more than during the peak, that it's growing into the sort of creature he wants it to be. Hence, the prayers offered in the state of dryness are those which please him best. We can drag our patients along by continual tempting because we design them only for the table. 
and the more their will is interfered with, the better. He cannot tempt to virtue as we do to vice. He wants them to learn to walk and must therefore take away his hand. And if only the will to walk is really there, he is pleased even if they stumble. Don't be deceived, Wormwood. Our cause is never more in danger than when a human no longer desiring but intending to do our enemy's will looks around upon a universe from which every trace of him has seems to have vanished, asks why he's been forsaken, and still obeys. 2 Corinthians 6.2, Paul says this, I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. And I wonder this morning if you could believe that. If there's an area in your life, if there's a how long, if you could believe that today is a day of salvation. Today is a day that God can move. Maybe you can't go that far. Maybe you're not willing to say, you know what, he's going to change it. Maybe you've gone down that road often and nothing's changed. Isaiah 46.4, God says this, Even to your old age and gray hairs, I am he. I am he who will sustain you. I have made you and I will carry you. I will sustain you and I will rescue you. Maybe if you can't believe that God can change it, maybe you can at least believe that he'll sustain you. If you're not too risky for you to believe that God can do a new deal in your life, maybe you can at least believe that he'll sustain you. You can open up the door again. The place that's hardened, you can at least say, I don't think you'll change it, but I do trust that you can sustain me. I wonder with C.S. Lewis if you could say, You'll look around at this area of your life. You don't see any trace of God. You'll wonder, how long will you forget me forever? But you'll choose to obey, to hang in there, and not to give up. Let's pray. That was kind of the easy part. Um, this is a part that might be a little more difficult to actually make a choice to open back up. It's here, easy to hear people talk about it, but it's hard if you have an area of, of your life where you honestly would say, "God's he's forgotten about it, to give him another chance. Father, I pray that you would... Um, Give us eyes to see our how long from your perspective, that we would not regard it, regard it from a purely worldly point of view. God, that you would give us eyes to see at least that you see. God, that you know what's going on and that you have not forgotten us. God, I pray for those in this room who this message is a knife in their heart. pray you would comfort them this morning, God. I pray that they would be willing uh, to choose to hang in there. If they've hardened their heart to repent and to give you another chance, at least to sustain them, if not to change them. And God, I do believe, and we do believe, because you said it, that you make all things new. And God, we want to experience that.
but we want to live that reality. That we are a new creation and that the old is gone and the new has come. So I pray now as we pray and as we sing and as we listen, Father, that your spirit would minister into the hearts of all who are here. God, if there are any here who are not in Christ, may today be the day that they would say yes. God, if there are any here who would say, I'm not a new creation, I'm in Christ, but that's not my reality. May today be the day. In Jesus' name. We have some ministry teams in the back. Um, Y'all can stand and you can respond however you feel led. Yeah.